Hey, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another Sunday night live. Hello, Lynn. Um, well, tonight we have two guests on tonight, and um, first I'll bring on the moderator. Hello, moderator. Hello. And we have two guests tonight. We have Ronnie Dugdale. Hello. We've, we've seen before. He's a a paranormal investigator. Is that right, Ronnie? Or no, paranormal enthusiast. I'd say I've been enthusiast in investigating nowadays. I've done quite a bit for the Rendlesham Forest, but okay. Well, yeah, uh, uh, paranormal. Yeah. yeah, kind of an investigator. And a welcome from the United States of America. <coughs> Burrows. Hello, John. Good evening. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Hi, John. Thanks. And John hey, is, if I'm, if I'm correct, John was one of the first airmen to witness the events in Rendlesham Forest. Is that correct? A uh, second, really. My second. My supervisor saw it first and got my attention. So. <laughs> uh, well, we'll say you're the first. Okay. And, uh, Hello, Lisa, Sue, Mark, Elaine. Good evening to everybody. Well, where do we start tonight? Um, Elaine's going to put her spirit box on again. We see if we get anything coming up. And I think we may take a break in the middle. Hello, Joe. So who do we start with? Ronnie? John's a man. He's John's a man. Yeah. We we'll start with you, John. Well, actually, I would say Ronnie, just because Ronnie could go over a timeline of the events before oh. we go into the other stuff. So, yeah, if that's what you want to do. Because that's what's in the book. The book opens. With yeah. The okay. Yeah. Okay. So on the the first night, which was Christmas night, going into Boxing morning, early hours in the morning, um, John was traveling down the East Gate with his um, with Bud Stephens, who was his supervisor. Um, I was fairly new to to um, RAF Bentmores and Woodbridge. John had been there, I don't know, nearly a couple of years, a year and a half, something like that. And one of the jobs they'd do is they were tasked to check the the east gate because it had a combination lock on, and sometimes people knew the combination lever unlocked. So that's one of the jobs they'd do is go around and check that. So as they're travelling down towards it, Bud Stephens says, did you see that, John? And John's, what, see what? And there were some lights over the forest, you know, looking out down the east gate of the forest. And he says, have you ever seen anything like that before? And John goes, no, I've checked this gate hundreds of times and I've never seen anything like that. So they um, went down the east gate road, parked near the road, and they could see that the lights weren't that far into the forest. Um, they were fairly close. Um, the, the minute they got out of the vehicle, they felt like an um, electrostatic feeling. Things didn't feel too good. They saw this big, big white light. You're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, John. And that seemed to be moving towards them. So they jumped back in the vehicle, shot down the Eastgate Road to call it in um, because that was like a sensitive thing. And people used to listen to the, the radios. They used the landline at the Eastgate. There was a little hut there. And um, John rings up. I think it was um, 
Crush McCabe, John. Yep. You spoke to first. He was on the yep. law enforcement desk. Well, John was well known for practical jokes. And so there's John telling Crush McCabe that there's these mysterious lights in the forest and that, in, um, you know, this, that was doing things that, that they weren't sure that was, you know, that weren't a crashed aircraft or anything like that, but there was something weird. And he's thinking that's John on the Christmas wind-up again, so he's not taking him seriously. So then hands the phone over to um, Bud Steffens, his supervisor, who says, well, if you don't believe us, come down. The lights are still there. You can see them. So then um, Crush McCabe realised that that was something serious. So then he had to get in contact with the um, Central Security Control. Um, you have to help me out here, John. Who was the person on there? Was that um, Dave Coffey? I, I believe so, but Donnie yeah. Diller was the other guy that was involved. Yeah, in yeah, but um, I think he spoke to David Coffey, and um, he said there's something serious down here, and you better send someone down. So he then contacted Jim Penniston, who I think was the flight chief for that night, and Jim wanted to know what was the nature of the, you know, the why did they need him to go down there? And they said, well, you better wait until you get down there and explain it to you. So his driver that night um, was Ed Kabansag, and he was another new person. He hadn't been there for, there for long. And so they go down to the East Gate, and Jim Penniston talks with um, Bud Steffens, and they can see the lights there still. I think Jim must have then got permission for them to go off base. And I think part of the reason they got permission to go off base because they checked with radar and they said, yes, something had been seen. I think they checked with local radar and also with Heathrow Tower. And they said, yes, a bogey had been seen. Go off the screen over the Rendlesham Forest somewhere. So then he's thinking that's a downed aircraft. And so he's got to get a team to go out there and investigate. They got permission to go. Um, he wanted Bud Steffens to go out there, and Bud Steffens is saying, I'm not going out there. I've heard about this forest and what goes on in there and these lights. And so um, the team was John, um, Ed Kabansak, and Jim Penniston. So that's the task to do the whole timeline, but I'll do my best. So then they, um, to try and cut a long story short, they go off into the forest and they're um, travelling towards these lights. So they go down the Eastgate Road, turn right onto the main road. Then they find a logging track on the left-hand side, and they're heading towards these lights. So eventually they come across them a berm, and as they get to the berm, they look over, and there's um, this really bright, intensive light. Now, this is where the stories all are different, because what John remembers and what Jim Penniston says happened and what Ed Caban says, they're, they're all different. Ed can remember up to that point that they went into the forest and they were um, chasing these lights until they got to them. They seemed to be playing with them for a while, these lights, as they seemed to be getting closer, they'd move away and things like that. So he can remember that. He can't remember anything about a landed craft or anything like that. Um, John says that when they got to the berm, he looked over, there was a big, a big um, white light, a flash of white light, and they hit the ground. And Jim Penniston tells um, his side, he says that um, when he got close to it, that was a, an actual object, that was a triangular solid craft, looked like that was crafted out of onyx, like glass-like feel, um, nine foot triangular, um, six to seven foot tall. And he then he goes on to say that he could see glyphs on the side of it. And 
um, he, he's trying to look for engines for um, cockpits there's nothing like that at all on it and um, as he touched these 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 objects he told us a, a few years later in 2010 that he had a binary load and uh, binary code download um so then i think jim says that the craft lifted up and disappeared um john can you um tell the next bit where you you chased it over the fields because <laughs> Do you want me to carry on? No, you did fine. I bet, like, the timeline, I just let you go, kind of the timeline of the story, you know, like, over the years. But, okay, so when we got close to it, there was, like Roddy said, three of us remember different things. I remember getting close to it, and then it, it seemed like the lights dimmed. Then they got bright again. They shot up. Uh, Ed said in an interview he did with James Fox that uh, uh, I think it was out of the blue – they actually got him on tape and he said that he remembers we got close to it. And then he, we all blacked out. Uh, Penniston's story is what Ronnie said. He got up, walked around it for 45 minutes, touched it, got a binary download, all that. But when it shot back out to into the field towards the coast, we got up, climbed the fence, went into the field. We could see something down by the house. At first we got there. Oh, it was gone. So at that point, in Ed and mine's statement, we even identified we saw a beacon. So we started heading out towards the beacon. One of the things he did talk about was during the, from the time we departed the vehicle, we're on foot all the way clear out to the coast. They lost us on radio on and off at, at one point for over 45 minutes. The, uh, we, we proceeded towards the coast, saw some blue lights in the sky one more time. Once we got to the coast, which... That's one of the most vivid memories I have is being at, standing there looking down and looking at the lighthouse itself rotating. So at that point, it was gone. So we, we went ahead and returned back to base. That was night one. So. Well, I've got, um, you know, I've read your book, John, by the way, and John's got a book all about the incident have you so if yeah you it's called to... weaponization of a uap 40 years later ronnie does the complete timeline uh then we have some work done by james warrow who's a british researcher that did a lot of work on the technology that was outside when keach is an engineer from the uk that did a report in the book about summarizing what do you think happened to include that we brought a russian satellite down during that event the technology involved, you know, and everything else. And the interesting thing in the book is, is that Colonel Halt, I contacted Colonel Halt with Wynn Keach's report, and he pretty much agreed with everything Wynn said happened to include the satellite being brought down. But the only thing he did say was that an, an aircraft didn't come in and retrieve the satellite to give it back to the Russians. So, and then also a British researcher, David Clark, talked somewhat about Project Condine and the individual that did the report, and he went into some of the details of Condine. I mean, when you're talking about going out to the coast, I've, I've, I've made these notes from, from your book, and it said that um, plasma orbs and lights were seen off the coast by fishermen as well. 
That would be Ronnie's in. Ronnie did. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were for quite a um they've been spotted up the coast as far as down where I live in Galston. That there've uh, been these orbs that came out of the sea as well, as went into the sea and also shot along the coast. I can remember as, as a youth um fishing on that beach and there was an old boy there and we saw this thing happen and I can remember him saying to me, Don't tell your parents that you, you know this this happened because they'll never believe you they'll think you're gone round the twist but uh, yeah and he, he told me he'd seen these big orbs that used to hang at the end of the groin just like they were watching you you know <laughs> but they had been and and especially up the coast um near the rendlesham area that the fishermen have reported these lights um going in and out of the ocean all the while because um the, the authorities said, you know, it was a lighthouse. You saw the lighthouse, you know, mm. or, or the John and, and the guy saw the lighthouse, didn't they? But then these fishermen, you've got now fishermen who were witnesses to, yeah, to what was going on there. Yeah, over over the the um, weekend when the incidents happened, a lot of people don't know this, but that was reported really early back by Brenda in her book, Sky Crash. The fishermen were paid to keep out of the waters for over that all that period. They were paid handsomely not to go to sea. And they were warned, you know, like, don't, because that would be detrimental to your health. So obviously they were there was some sort of experiment going on that they needed to keep them out, out of there. Um, HMS Norfolk was off the coast there. Um, the, the people in the in that ship were told not to keep below decks and weren't allowed up on the decks. There was a Russian submarine seen out there quite a lot. The Tupolev airplane, Russian seen off there as well. There was reports of, um, I think, a Russian frog, was a Russian frogman caught in the forest at one time, John? Well, according to the email we got from the OSI agent was involved, he said they caught, they did catch a Russian agent. They didn't really say if it was a frogman or not, but Halt was the one who originally brought up the frogman theory. So was it? Yeah. Oh, heard that before. <laughs> no, there's lots because I think with the the Rendlesham Forest incident, everyone concentrates on the the same narrative that's been spewed out for, and there's a lot of information out there by local investigators that has been overlooked because. That, that hasn't fitted in with what other people are saying at the conferences all the while, especially like the main characters, the main yeah. witnesses. Same yeah. thing over again. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got, I've got lots of stuff down here, and um, I've twice I've put down here, so I was just, I've only made notes, so mm -hmm. I don't remember, won't remember who said it. But the Rendlesham was not wasn't terrifying. Uh, is that correct? Um, that's John. He'll tell you. <laughs> I I've been asked that. I I was too much focused on what was going on to say I was like terrified. I think the only time that I felt nervous was when we first went off base. We didn't call it in. No one knew we left base. And when we got down to the end of the road, got out, and the weird feeling was there in the sky. You know, the sky seemed different. I mean, it just those surroundings felt different. There was static electricity in the air. We knew that there was more to than just some strange lights, and we were both concerned. We didn't know what we were dealing with. But once, once we got took off and went into the forest, there was no 
real fear. There was not a fear factor. It was more of let's figure out what's going on. We were driven by, <laughs> by adrenaline and w try to figure out what we were dealing with. Excuse me. Yes, it says uh, the atmosphere. The atmosphere changed as the guys neared the lights. You know, it's, um, I mean, having having read your book, John, uh, what I, <coughs> for me re reading, I can I can visualise where you were because I've been wandering that forest for about what twelve years. So <clears throat> it's quite fascinating to to read that. Uh, it probably hasn't changed that much since you were there. I don't really know. Well, the actual reality of it was that after the event happened, I I, I don't have the date, but uh, it was within a couple three years. There was a what there was called, I guess, by your weather people, like a hurricane hit that coast area and leveled the forest. And they actually, Ronnie could probably. Are you back, Ronnie? Yes. Yeah, sorry the, about the, that. that. Yeah. Yeah, that it actually leveled these winds leveled the forest and they they took all the trees out and there was actually rumors that there was pre-staged trucks there before the event happened and they got all the the timber out all the trees out and then it took almost 30 years till we came back where the forest was getting close to where it was when we first went out there even though the actual entrance to the base was different because they, the trees had grown up to the road, which wouldn't have happened. We had a clear zone and a bunch of other stuff. But the forest was pretty close to what it was like height-wise 30 years later. But it took that long to grow back. So Yeah, it was 1987. Mike just, Mike just put that as well. Yeah, yeah 1987. That was a, a big storm, that, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a big storm, um, yeah. Alex. But there was an awful lot of trees removed straight after the incidents. Was um, it? Yeah, they, they, they disappeared right quick. Yes, um, so I'm so I'm sitting here reading what I've written, mm. trying to read what I've written. I should have typed it out, shouldn't I? Uh, anyway, um, yeah, saying that the atmosphere changed, and um, there was also a bright sphere of light in front of Jim Peniston. So I'll take it was all, all about the same time that all this this happened. You know. Um, anyway, I'll let you carry on, guys. Well, I mean, do you have, where do you want us to go with this? I mean. Do you want to you go? Want, do, you, do you want a, a, a brief rundown of what happened on the second night? Yeah, yeah, whatever. So, so I'm just working. Off, I'm, just, quite a lot. I'm just, I'm just working off the notes here. So. Okay, so, so on the second night, um, they stationed this young girl, eighteen-year-old Laurie Bowen, down on the East Gate. Um, she's, you can imagine what it'd be like there for a young person overseas, pitch black, on the East Gate, and while she's there on her own, she sees a massive orangey, red, yellow sphere of a ball of light go over the runway and descend it down into the on the north side of the runway down into the forest well if anything goes over the runway they have to call it in so she was pretty terrified so first she called it in and, and said that she was scared and john tremontosi one of the um airmen came down to sit with her and you know to, to make sure she was comfort because she was scared she said it was just like watching something as big as the moon um, looked like hands full of fire just going over the over the runway. So um, the um, flight chief, that not flight chief, was she a flight chief? Lieutenant Bonnie Templin, John. What was that? Shift commander. Shift commander. Yeah. So she was um, dispatched to go and investigate it. She's took with her um, master sergeant Bobby Ball on the way towards where um, 
the east gate is coming from bent wars um a sphere of light entered her truck she went off the road crushed her crushed the vehicle and um laurie bowen is hearing over the radio their shift commander terrified saying i can't see i can't see where are you bob where are you bob you know calling him by his name and so um they, they were a bit freaked out to think that the, the shift commander had lost lost you know lost control and um she's shouting she's shouting out she can't see where are you bob so there are some stories that say that she discharged her weapon into the whatever it was what was in the forest you know the the, the light whatever it was anyway um the person who was on supply was sent out to go pick him up. And when she got to the side of the road, there was Bob Ball and Bonnie Templin there. And they were, um, she well, she said they were shaken with fear and Bonnie Templin was distraught, pointing into the forest saying, they're in there, they're in there. Then the next day, um, Bonnie Templin was gone. They hear her back to her out and she's gone. So that was what happened on the second night. So I suppose people... You know, said so when you talk to people, they say, "Well, why would the, why would aliens, if you like, a species, why would they be interested in Rendlesham?" But that was probably the airbase, wasn't it? Well, I used to think that was the experiments that we were doing in that area. You know, did were these were these balls of light? Were they affecting your mind in some way? And you you think you're seeing something you're not. John, you'd know more about that. Well, okay. Here's the thing. At the time <clears> of the <throat> event, mo the, the flights didn't know what was going on outside the back gate. I have no idea how much the chain of command on the base knew. Uh, I don't think they did because I don't think we night three would have happened if they really knew what was going on at Marlstrom Heath, Bowsey, uh, the Bowsey, Marlstrom Heath area. Never mind the fact that Andrew Pike was down there working and now he always gets upset because he's safety of the government. But in his own words, he said he was down there talking to people on an official level. Well, there's only one official level in the United Kingdom, and that's uh, the British government. So he was down there. They were actually looking at a phenomenon that was known in the area, down in that area. So the area was, as, as people have said, you yourself, Alex, off camera said that you've been down there. People had stuff happen, has happened way before our event, through our event, and even after, and still to this day, there's strange stuff that goes on. So it's definitely uh, an area that has weird activity taking place. The government was aware of it. They were working on different types of technology, you know, out there, you know, having to do with radars, plasmas. If you know about the area, that's where they originally um, worked on, they were actually working on the death ray, which is lasers. Then they discovered radar, and from there, that was the first operational radar site in the United Kingdom was right there, you know, on the coast there in Orford Nest, okay? Orford Nest, yeah. Yeah, and one of the interesting things was that, and I'm going to kind of go over some notes I have, okay, is this, that originally, and it was laughable at the time, but through research, it actually was probably involved, and I'll tell you why. The lighthouse was a, a researcher from the area claimed that we were just fooled by the lighthouse, but we, for three nights, we chased the lighthouse beacon. But in reality, the lighthouse was connected to 
the original um, radar site, okay, which was there, they had a Lauren system that was connected was with, with the Black Beacon at Orford Nest. And they were running low frequency waves uh, through the, the lighthouse, uh, both you know above ground and underground. And Pike himself confirmed that they were actually provoking the phenomenon. And so this particular um, transmitter would create all kinds of effects, including the plasmas themselves and everything else. And then you have uh, Wynn Keats that says that these plasmas could actually be controlled by radar radar beams where they could be going up and down plus you also have the uh you have the fact that um that the lasers themselves would be used so at the time when we saw these blue lights um he talked about them on his tape and i saw them on night three was you were like what could that be you know there's no way we have that technology but in reality we did it was just plasmas that they were creating either they were creating themselves um through this technology or the phenomenon was being provoked and it would actually create its own plasmas you know it would create the plasmas would come out of this phenomenon which is what they call uaps and then these lasers could actually be used to control and steer besides the radars these plasmas that were in the sky so it covers some of what Halt said when he saw blue lights in the sky um, moving around. Bobby Ball said in his CNN interview, it looked like it was doing a grid pattern, and they could actually control the blue lights with lasers and radars to make those effects. So part of what was going on was that. Never mind, they probably, we've got quite a bit of documents to support. I won't go too deep into it today, but they could create a time dilation bubble, which is probably exactly what happened on the first night and the third night. I, I can't speak for the second night, but especially when Adrian and I got close to this, most likely I went into a time di dilation bubble and I actually disappeared, which would counter with the effects of a time dilation when you go in it everything changes. So it would also explain the effect of the static electricity in the air. The tower on night three saw this like whitish, brownish, hueish bubble come down out of the sky over the forest area where we were. So we probably were not only involved with the plasmas being moved around and whether they came from the phenomena were created by our technology, but also by uh, time dilation bubbles that were being created, which time dilation bubbles actually lead to wormholes. And it's good. there's a possibility based off of the research the government's done that that these areas like Rendlesham could have uh, a weakness in EM fields and you could actually provoke a, a, a mini, um, you know, type of uh, wormhole. That actually, and and when you really look at it, uh, Hall on when he said he looked at the star scope and saw um, what he, the effects he saw, including molten uh, lead coming down, that's the effect of a, a a mini wormhole opening. So this is all, and for people that will want to argue this, this is these are documents that support this, and in the book we cite the uh, actual documents declassified documents never mind the fact that condine itself which is a declassified secret report that the british government put together showed that what 
the people that were involved, including myself, were exposed to UAP radiation. So the British government was well aware of what they were doing in that area, and the United States government was working with them. So a lot of the technology was probably in its infant stages where it was still an R&D. So they were still working on it. It wasn't operational yet, but they were working on that, including studying the phenomenon that's in the area. Yeah, I, was, I went to Orphan, went over to Orphan this uh, <clears throat> earlier this year. And uh, as we were walking around, what well, did they do this guided tour thing? And the guy said, oh, by the way, there aren't any tunnels between here and Rendlesham. That made me think, are there tunnels between there? And there are. There actually are because a friend mm -hmm. of ours, Gordy is his name. When I visited in 18, we went out to Bowsey and they got on the got on the grounds and he went into the radar facility and there were tunnels leading out from the radar facility heading out into the forest they had water yeah. in it so they couldn't he couldn't go that was one of the things that halt said that there was no tunnels because of the water table but in reality gordy there's pictures he posted online showing the tunnels that led out into the forest but that, that was not true anyway, John, because if you look at the Ordnance Survey map, map both um, Bentwaters and Woodbridge are way above sea level. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you just... I mean, went, we put tunnels under the sea, so... Yeah, right, yeah, but, but I'm just saying there were tunnels leading from Bowsey into the forest. Yeah, I've seen, so, I've seen the pictures from Gordy. Yeah, so, oh, I mean, mm. yeah, so there are tunnels that go out into the forest. Now, do they go all the way to the base? Well, here's another thing that they weren't being honest about. That Woodbridge base was used as a recovery base in World War II for fighters returning from, from over in Germany. And they had these tunnels that they built that they put fuel on and they would light the fuel. And what, what were the houses called, Ronnie, that they had out there? That one was gone. But they had these pumping houses that would pump the fuel and they would light the fuel and that would cut through the fog so these planes could crash or land. Yeah. From coming back from, um, you know, the the war, you know, the, what they were doing in Germany. So there were underground tunnels in the forest with that. So, yeah, yeah, I was just so surprised. It was so quick. Oh, there are no tunnels. I thought, well, hmm, that means they're all. <laughs> well, so, uh, I mean, there's evidence there is. Let's just put it to that. Yeah. Way. yeah. Well, um, well also, one more thing I want to add to that. Andrew Pike told me that. And it was interesting because at the time the incident happened, there were these EM generators that the British government had. And he said they were utilizing those to provoke the phenomenon through the tunnels. But right after the news of the world, he hit the actually Margaret Thatcher classified those generators. So those generators were classified, you know, secret or top secret, whatever. So you couldn't, you couldn't look into what those generators were capable of after uh, um, the Reynolds from Forest incident hit the newspapers in England. Mm. I think that was what, that's what upset Andrew Pike, and why he stopped investigating down there was because they were um, provoking the plasma in them tunnels. Well, never knew that. Have you heard that one before, Elaine? Not heard that before. Uh, um, Alex, have you ever read the Rendlesham file by Andrew Pike? No, I haven't, no. That's a massive, massive volume. And um, you should get hold of a copy. There's still copies okay. of it. I might be able to find you one. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I did a lot, a lot of deep research in there for the time. Um, but I don't know whether he was he got a little bit worried or whether he was told to shut up. But I think he got close to the mark on a lot of things in that book. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was living in London at that time, but it was the news of the world. That's right. It came out mm. news of the world, and didn't have a clue where it was. And then on my first visit there uh, at Rendlesham. Uh, that was probably a strange time for me because we were on track 12. And I've said this before. I know Derek was with me. Derek, Elaine's brother, was there. And uh, a voice, a man, told me, would you please leave the ancients and aliens alone? Mm, I've heard other people had similar messages there as well. I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't go back... For, I, didn't go back for a couple of months, but then I started going back there again. Of course, I've been going ever since. But, yeah, I don't know what that was all about. I've seen strange things in their lights, same as, same as everyone else. But all of a sudden, it's all very quiet. The other thing is, uh, John, about the light. Uh, the lasers were supposed to have come down from, I don't know, a UFO to, that knocked out the weapon system. Was that is that correct or is that was that something made up? I think I was, I'm sorry, Johnny. The microphone's gone off. John's gone. You're muted, John. You're muted. Yeah, I do mute when I'm not talking. Um, Colonel Hall worked with a U.S. researcher called Robert Hastings, and Robert Hastings was. His angle was nukes that have been affected by UFOs. Okay. So Hulk got involved with Hastings. Hastings came up with the major, and I'm just recanting what they said, not what I'm saying. Okay. So I'm don't put me on the spot that I said this happened. This is what happened through Hastings Hall and this major. So according <laughs> to Hastings, this major came forward to him and said that there were nuclear weapons stored at Bentwaters. Okay. There was a team, I know this much, they did come in on a C C5 on Sunday night after our event that landed at Bentwaters, and the plane ended up in the staging area out by the WSA. But he said that a team came in, and two of the, uh, what they called um, tactical nukes, this is, again, not me saying or confirming it, this is just the story that came out, the two of the tactical nukes codes had been altered inside the uh, storage area, okay? And that the uh, nukes were removed and sent back to Kirkland. Now, Halt got involved with Hastings and came back and said he spoke with the major. And he and see, and again, Halt always will neither confirm or deny that there are nukes there, but he confirmed the story saying that he believed the major and he believed that the nukes codes were altered. So this all came from Hastings, this unidentified major and Colonel Hall, that, that at some point two of the tactical nukes were uh, damaged. Hmm. Interesting. I've got a question here from, from Joe. Do you think the activity in the area is some kind of connection with the history of the area? I do. 
Oh, is that it? Okay. It, it had to do probably with the history, but it also had to do with the fact that the governments were aware of the history and what was going on. And they were creating a lot more effects than, you know, than would be normal, you know, prior to. So a lot of what was going on was being triggered by the government to include the fact that in our book, when Keats talks about the fact that during those three nights, they were bringing a Russian satellite down also. So all the technology being utilized to trigger the satellite to be brought down, which was brought down right there off the coast, okay, would have had an effect on what we were experiencing, what went on. Oh, okay, okay. Got another question here from Gene. Mini wormholes. Interesting. The UAG radiation should have proved the wormhole theory. What? I don't know what UAG radiation is. Um, neither do I, but let me look. <laughs> I'll, I'll give her an answer. There it is. It's come up. Uh, sorry for the dead air time, but that's okay. I'm just trying to see what UA what it is. Yeah, UAG. UAP. Does she meant UAP radiation? That's, well, I'm wondering UAP. Okay, yeah. well, we'll go with the UAP radiation. Um, the UAP radiation is terahertz radiation, which is a finger of UAPs being there. So, yes, it, there was UAP radiation involved because Condine itself said so. So, so that, that, that was just day two then, uh, guys, was it? How many days did this go, did this go on for? At least three, maybe more. Did it? Mm. So the third night is the famous halt, you know, the halt incident. Um, that, but that started off in the afternoon when um, Lieutenant Bruce England, under instructions of um, Conrad, who was the base commander, was sent to go and visit the disaster preparedness officer, Munro Nevels. And um, he went there and he actually, he was, Monroe Neville's was there with his three-year-old daughter, and Bruce England has gone in there and says, um, is there anyone else in the house? And so Monroe Neville said, no, only my three-year-old daughter. Well, do she understand what I'm saying? And he said, well, I don't know unless you tell me what you're going to say. And he said, well, I'm here under the instructions of the base commander. He wants us to go and do an investigation in the forest to the landing site. And... Um, brain freeze and so um they went off into the forest and they eventually found a phenomena there some lights and they seemed to be interacting with them when they opened the car door the lights got brighter and when they closed it, it got dimmer and so they went back to the um the the party was the um at the woody's bar where all the officers and that were meeting for an end of the year pat on the back party and so they were, um, they just finished the main course, and England, Bruce England, and um, Monroe Neville's go there and asked to speak to Conrad, and and he told them that the phenomena was back. And um, so Holt says, "What's back?" And they said, "Well, the UFO is back." And so he says, "Do to Monroe Neville's." Conrad says, "Do this warrant further investigation?" And um, he says, "Yes, it does." So then. Holt had to muster a team together to go out and then investigate it in the forest. And so we, um, there's a little bit of discrepancy here because Monroe Nevels was already there 
But Colonel Holt says that he rung up Sue Jones, who was Captain Sue Jones, who was the head of the um, disaster preparedness and asked who was available. And she said, well, Monroe Nevels is available. Well, anyway, he went out there. Um, they He went and got a Geiger counter and the camera because he was to, he was quite a good photographer and he used to take photographs for the base photo magazine. Um, Bobby Ball um, went out there. Adrian Bustinza went out there, although Colonel Holt denied he was ever there for, for a long, long period. And um, who else went out there, John? Um, in, uh, in, Lieutenant, England, Lieutenant England was out there. Lieutenant England. There's someone else. England Ball, um, oh, Ball, Ball yeah. uh, Bustinza were... That's uh, and, and Holt. Yeah, and five. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so they go out there when Holt gets down to um, what they called the staging post where they'd had light all there. There was people milling around everywhere and Holt flipped out a bit. He said, if the English find out about this, this will be a, you know, a, a disaster. You know, we're, we shouldn't be out here. Mm. So anyway, he told everyone to stay back who weren't supposed to be there to stay back at the staging post. Um, in the meantime, John had made his way out there um, with a couple of people and had asked them to join up with them, which Holt said, no, not at this time, which that was all overheard on the Holt tape, which through the, the, his theory that um, John wasn't never out there on that third night. Um, anyway, they go out into the forest and they see this light that's moving about in the field. And they said it looks like an eye winking at you. That seemed like to be under um, control, you know, that was a control thing. So anyway, as they go to go towards it, that moves towards them. And so they freak out a bit. Then it goes back into the field. And this is where Colonel Holt says that silently exploded into. No, I've missed a bit out. Um, Colonel Holt was worried about the people in the cottages down there because the the orange light was shining in the windows and he thought you know that they might have been in danger as they go into the field um the this um light that looks like an eye winking at you is said to explode into three white lights and disappeared it's not on the whole tape anywhere i'm not sure whether that happened then or whether that i wondered if it happened to john's incident with adrian because um, adrian said it exploded into white lights Anyway, they, um, that disappeared. They go out into the field to see if they can find any trace of what was in the, you know, of the UFO had left behind, or UAP, we should say. Um, there's nothing there at all, only cow pats everywhere. So they then go across the, the road, past the cottages, into the next field. <clears throat> and by this time, they're now seeing lights up um, to the south and to the north that were like moving in a controlled fashion. One of them comes towards them and stops immediately above them and sends down a beam of light to and the feet of Holt. And he don't know, is this a weapon? Is this a warning? He didn't know what it is. All the while, he's radioing in at the base saying what's going on. And they're just saying, you're the only person who can see it. We can't see nothing going on. And so he's, got in, he's getting no answers. Um, recent years, Monroe Nevels has said that incident never happened. No beam of light come down to the feet. It's taken him all these years to say that. But there might have been a bit of a disagreement between the two of them, but he's adamant that part of the story never happened. And so from there, um, Holt is so frustrated that he's getting no answers from anywhere. He makes his way back across the field 
um, through the forest to the staging post where John is waiting there. Do you want to take it from there, John? Well, there's a couple of things to add to that. The beam of light that came down to his feet, pretty much right after that happened, we had a blue light streak towards us, go past us, go through a pickup truck that somebody jumped into and shoot back up into the sky. As it passed us and went towards the truck, there were some light alls that Hall talked about that didn't work. The light alls briefly lit up and went off. And then they shot up into the truck, up to the sky, the blue light did. The interesting thing was that was where the story got blown out of proportion that somebody freaked out and kicked a window out of the truck. That that didn't happen. The person jumped into the truck because it scared the crap out of him. And he, he got into the truck and it shot through the truck and went up into the sky. And that would have been Chris Arnold. So he's been one of those guys that came out and said nothing really happened. But it happened. And the other guy that was with me, I have emails from him that I he's actually retired now because he went into government work afterwards. But I'd asked him if he remembered that. And he said, yeah, I've got the emails to confirm that Chris got scared and jumped into a truck from something that wasn't ever happened. He said nothing ever happened out there, but Chris was scared enough to jump into a truck and then snap some pictures of whatever was out in the mm -hmm. sky. So after that happened, we met up. I met up. Armo and I and the other guy um, met up with Halt's team. At that point, in the distance, you could see this like white, orangish, hueish light coming down into the trees, into the forest out in front of us, and kind of looked like it was moving towards us. Halt asked me if uh, that's what I saw the first night, and I told him, I said, it's too far away to tell exactly if that's what we dealt with the first night. So he authorized Bastinza to go with me. So I was in civilian clothes. Bastinza was on duty. Bastinza had a radio. So we started off in a slow trot towards whatever this was. As we were heading towards it, it seemed to get closer to us. And at that point, I had the radio. I took the radio from Bastinza, and I was talking to the WSA tower at Bentwaters. And I asked them if we could go ahead and proceed up to the uh, object. And they said, go for it. So we started running faster, and this is where everything gets strange. I remember getting close to it, and then all of a sudden it was gone. But I do remember as we were running towards it, Ed, or not Ed, I'm sorry, Adrian went to the ground, and he claims he was pushed to the ground, and then something held, held him there. And what Adrian said, he saw me go into the, um, the light, which I think was a time dilation bubble, and disappear for a while. And then then the, the the bubble itself came over part of him, and then the then it disappeared. With I actually reappeared, is what I should say. It disappeared as I reappeared, and then we got up. So he saw me go into this what I think is a time dilation bubble and disappear for a while. And the interesting thing is, is that that's another whole story about the government and my injuries, but both Adrian and I were compensated by the government for what happened out there that night. So the government's acknowledged that we were involved in an event at Rendlesham Forest and we were injured by whatever we encountered. Oh, that's John, we John, John when, um, when Adrian said that you disappeared, he described it to me like that was like watching a, a snowy scene on a, on the television, you know, old black and white televisions and that you just actually dissolved away and momentarily there was a craft there. 
Yeah, Adrian had mentioned that. I think actually that there was like some kind of craft or something there. If mm. I were thinking back on it now, but I don't think he mentioned that in the book, though. I think he just said, I, no, I think he just probably told us. In, yeah, I think, in, but he yeah. did say in the book that he saw me disappear. So, mm. oh, first, first of all, I've heard that one. Well, then you didn't read yeah. the whole book because, <laughs> no, because no, Adrian, Adrian's account is exactly in there, exactly what he saw happen that night. So, so the other interesting thing from that um, is that when John and Adrian, they're, they're now walking back to where Holt is and they're saying to each other, you know, what, what, you know, whatever happened, both of them can't remember anything for the next 12 or 14 hours. Is that correct, John? I don't, I don't really remember much other than looking at him and starting to walk back. And then the next thing I remember really well is being standing out at the, at the post office on Sunday night, watching the airplane land from Langley. So I don't have a very good memory from early in the Sunday morning, all the way to Sunday night. And Adrian said the same thing. So yeah. Adrian told me he couldn't remember getting back from the forest to the base. He knew he either driven or someone driven, but he can't remember anything about that. Wow. Yeah. So much going on there. Just uh, some more questions here somewhere. This one from Joe. What is your take on the objects shot down over Canada this month? <laughs> you got any answers, Ronnie? <laughs> well, they were from China. <laughs> the, 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 I mean, the three objects that the government's really never said much about. The only thing it's fi I found interesting was that the NORAD commander came out on that press conference on that Sunday and said you couldn't rule out that it could be UFOs or aliens or whatever. I don't remember exactly the words you used. And the other interesting thing was that I'm friends with the one of the writers, the head writers at the Roswell Daily, which was the original newspaper that actually covered the Roswell incident. So they're still in existence, and and uh, he he contacted me because I did a show with him, and he's actually getting ready to put an article out, which we can go into about the whole after stuff that went on. But he um they were actually invited personally to attend that press conference. Normally the press corps is notified that's on a list, but they were actually the DOD asked them to attend the press conference where the four star general said it couldn't rule out that it could be aliens so that was just an interesting moment but then the next day there was cleanup on aisle nine when they did kind of a combination of the uh, phoenix lights where the press lady came out and said absolutely there's no evidence it's U ufos or aliens or whatever the press all kind of laughed and that kept uh kirby from being asked by the press corps what did the general mean by that you couldn't rule out that it was aliens. So, but they were actually invited to this press conference when he did divulge that they couldn't rule it out. So I, you know, the government's never really said, in fact, I think they came back and said they stopped searching for it. They couldn't recover anything. So it's interesting. They would shoot at something. They had no idea what it was. They missed with one of the missiles and then they had no idea how to recover any of what they had. So I don't know. Good question. But there's a lot of mystery to it. That's yeah. how we can leave it out. Watch this space, eh? Mm -hmm. uh, from from Bill. 
does John have any memory of actually seeing any aliens after he disappeared? <laughs> okay. If he's talking about the on night three with uh, Adrian, no, I, I just remember getting close to it and then it was gone. Whatever I was close to disappeared. So, so, and I don't believe there were actually aliens as the government's made us believe what aliens are out there at all over those three nights. So, you know, I've, I've asked this question before. You know, I said, there don't seem to be any photographs of anything that happened that night. And yet, in your, you've written in the book, John, and as well, there was some guy out there who'd taken like hundreds of photographs, but we've never seen any. Well, I haven't never seen any. Well, Christopher Arnold said he took some pictures, and that's kind of when he came out was trying to debunk the whole thing. First of all, back then, the the he had a thirty five millimeter camera, and film wasn't cheap back then. So my first point to him was, what were you doing snapping pictures of something in the sky or in the distance if there was nothing there? Would you a waste the, the film on it, and b then he had it developed and he claimed that nothing came back, but there also is. Ronnie, I think you could go into that. There's a picture that surfaced of an object that uh, a certain person that claimed they were involved in this incident put forth. Do you remember that? That kind of that, yeah. looked like a little bit like what my my um, actual drawing and my statement looked like. It kind of looked like it was one of those pictures that you were like, whoa, that kind of looked a little bit like what I remember seeing and drawing. So. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from, or I probably at one point I may have an, uh, seen where it came from, but I do know that that picture did pop up at one point. Yeah, that was on special film that weren't normally available to the public. But the other the other um, photographs, because Jim Penniston took a full roll of um, photographs around the around the the craft that he said he done the investigation around. Um, he handed them at the base photo lab and was told they all come back fogged. Monroe Nevels, he was a keen amateur photographer, so we took countless photographs, and he had his own dark room, and they all came out fogged. But in the early investigations, when Brenda met up with Jim Penniston, he told her he had photographs. A few few weeks, well, a month or so ago, uh, photographs come up on, on, on the internet. Uh, apparently, they were from a poacher. Oh, that was rubbish. That weren't the, that really? weren't even Rendlesham Forest. Now, if you look at the trees, they were trees that don't even grow in this country. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I just saw the gaps between the trees didn't tally yeah. up. That was that was just another. Yeah, but these were just lights. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. But the, tree, lights, you look at yeah. the trees, the bark on the trees, they're not the trees that grow in Rendlesham Forest. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah apparently he, he was somebody who used to go in there poaching quite a lot. Yeah, I'm sure there was people who went in there poaching. But yeah. what he said was, um, if he got called, I thought, well, I wouldn't have thought any, anyone would really take much notice of you being in there poaching. What's a poacher doing, taking the camera into the, with him? <laughs> well, there you go, yeah. I think it's just yeah. another one of them wannabe stories. Yeah. Well, like full of manure, that's supposed to be a truck full of manure burning. You know, there's been all sorts of stories along the line, people adding bits on. Yeah, all throw a red herring and deceive you and get you looking down the wrong road. Yeah, yeah. you know, like the pile of cow manure or the axle mm. 
uh, what Apollo capsule. But the, interesting enough, that particular thing that they said was the Apollo capsule probably was a satellite that was being hoisted out and brought over to the 67. The chemical thing that the, that the helicopter hit the runway lights with. Yeah, but that probably was a satellite yeah, that they, yeah, were, they were lifting probably, out. Yeah. So, but they used to cover the Apollo satellite. But we could go into the after part if you'd like to, Alex, where it gets really interesting. Yeah, I've just got a question from, I think it's okay. all interesting, <laughs> um, from, from Mike. He's saying, John, just to clarify something you said in your interview with Christina Gomez, you said you drove up to the main road from Eastgate, turned around and then went left into the forest. When did you feel the static atmosphere at the road or in the forest? Well, Mike's putting them both together. When we first left the Eastgate, we went straight down the road. When you get down to the end of the Eastgate road, the road that leads up to the Eastgate, there's a road and you go left or right. So it's like a T. What we did at first was we just went and we we got to the end of the road and we kind of, he turned the car around like he was making a U-turn and I opened up my car door to take a closer look into the forest. That's where the static electricity and stuff, you could feel that effect. And it, it concerned us enough that we were seeing the lights and that effect was there that we better get back up to the base and call it in. Now, the second part is when we left the base, Peniston and I at Cabansec, we went down to the end of the road, took a right, and then the logging road on the left, we turned left into and went into the forest where we went so far and had to just get out of the vehicle, climb over a fence, and then continue on into the forest. Okie dokie. So that was, that's the third night then, first, second, or third night. That was the first night when we first saw it. the first night. Yes. But we've covered all three nights now. So, yeah, yeah you covered all yeah. three nights now. So but that wasn't the end of it, was it? Or was it? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of things that happened afterwards. The uh, initially right after the event, some stuff got leaked out at a party with Brenda Butler and Dot Street by uh, what was his name, Ronnie? I, I, I'm having a senior. Um, J.D. Ingalls. J.D. Ingalls showed up at a party right afterwards and was talking about aliens in the forest. So that that got uh, Dot and uh, Brenda on the case, eventually joined by um, uh Jenny Randall's, they the, all kinds of stuff went on with them looking into it. Ronnie's got all the notes, the interviews, and stuff. And what happened from there was then some people in the states got involved through a guy by the name of Larry Warren that got booted out of the Air Force, came back to the states and started talking about it. They did a FOIA, and somehow, for whatever reason, the United States government acknowledged the FOIA with the Halt memo. When the halt memo hit, that's when everything hit the fan. Because for the longest time, the MOD was denying anything happened to Brenda and Dot and uh, Jenny Randalls. Nothing happened. Nothing was going on. They actually went to Whitehall at one point. And then, then when the memo came out, then they went back up there. And that's when News of the World hit. And that's when everybody's life changed from that point going forward with what I call investigators trying to figure out what happened to us. So the in the States, my phone started ringing uh, from across the world. Dot Street, Brenda called me. Um, the people in the States, Red Boucher and Scott Colburn, they, they ran me down. 
But CNN's the one that got a hold of me where I had to let the base know. And they tried to interview me, but I wouldn't talk on camera. So the story evolved from there. I mean, all kinds of things started coming out, you know, going forward. Halt and Penniston retired and then started talking about it. So, I mean, Ronnie, if you want to fill in some of the blanks before I go into what happened to me later on. Now you carry on, John. Okay. So you had all this going on. Different things were being said. Different investigations were done. A whole bunch of books were written. Documentaries were done and everything else. But where it gets interesting for me was coming up on the 30th anniversary. Okay. So I came together with Jim Penniston. And I said, there was a lot of fighting going on. Uh, Halt was, he's always kind of ran the show. He worked with Georgina Bruni in her book. Georgina Bruni was the one that first exposed Halt lying when it came down to Adrian the Mind's involvement. And then the tape that she got analyzed, the Halt's tape actually proved it, started proving his story started disintegrating from that with Adrian and I being on the tape. But anyway, so my goal was the 30th anniversary was coming up. We were going to come back over and also to get as many people together as we could. Well, that pretty much fell apart other than Penniston and I did come back over and we came over with a, a company called Prometheus Entertainment, which did a show called Ancient Aliens. So we came over, we did a conference. That's when the world was uh, introduced to the binary code. Um we uh, we met, we did the conference, we went out in the forest, we met with people. It was it was a very fun time to go back over it and be back over there. Um, so then when I left and I came back, I started feeling sick. And it would have been about a month or so later, I got so sick, I ended up in the hospital with congestive heart failure and AFib. Now, prior to this, right after the event, I didn't feel well. And ended up getting, they found out I had a heart murmur, which I didn't have coming in because I couldn't have had it. They diagnosed me with a heart murmur, and I got taken to Wright-Patterson where a whole bunch of tests were done. So on that those grounds, and then later my eyes started acting up, I ended up being evaluated at Wolford Hall, and they felt I was exposed to radiation. But putting that all together with the event, I didn't at the time. I just didn't. I knew I didn't feel well. But in 2011, after I got sick, my heart doctor, the civilian heart doctor, felt that the issues I was having with my heart and the damage to my heart didn't match up. And you have to deal with insurance in the States, and they only go so far with symptoms like they won't do this test, they won't do that test if this test shows back negative. But the long story short was he wanted to see my initial records from the initial injury. So he we I requested through Senator Kyle's office for my personnel records and my medical records. And they put a formal inquiry in, and the inquiry came back to the senator's office stating my records weren't where they were supposed to be. So they followed up. And they were able to get a little bit of my personnel records to include a, a DD-424. Only DD-424 they released was showing I was in from 1982 going forward. And my medical records, they couldn't get their hands on. 
So at that point, she sent me a letter stating that my records were classified and I had to file for disability to force the government to acknowledge my records existed and to review them. So she did. we did that, but they got no response back, nor did I get in to see the, v, the, the VA to be evaluated. Senator Kyle retired. Senator McCain took over the case. They got me in for my uh, initial you know, review of my damage. And the doctor looked at me and said, that's interesting. Everything you're describing to me couldn't have happened then. And I looked at her and I said, why is that? And she said, you weren't in the Air Force in 1979. So you didn't even come in until 1982. I have all the records in front of me stating that. I said, okay, well, what about these pay records and my entry physical in 79? She looked at her eyes, got real big. She says, well, that's about my pay grade. She goes, I can only write up what I know. And she said, I'll write up a recommendation. So a couple of months later, I got denied. Any of my whole claim got denied based on the fact the United States Air Force, which I have the documents and I've shown in presentations, stating that I wasn't even in the Air Force during the time frame it happened. So at that point, we had to appeal the case, which we did. We put a bunch of FOIA out to include asking a direct question, were my records classified? Because we have proof that there was a classified record section. And the, the thing was, is that they wouldn't acknowledge our FOIA. And in fact, the appeal uh, agency I went through was a state agency that had access to some of my files, showed what few records they gave to McCain's office were only about 10% of what the government held. So they were lying to the senator when they even told him that these are the records we have on him. So we did another FOIA, okay? So during that time frame, there was a, a hearing in the States. I don't know if you guys heard about it over in England, but there was a guy by the name of Steve Bassett that was doing, at the time, what they called a mock hearing. It's called the citizen's hearing. And what he was doing was recreating what would probably happen if there was ever a hearing in front of the United States Congress. So they got a bunch of ex-members of Congress and they held like a hearing, okay? So myself, Penniston, my attorney, Pat Frisconia, and Nick Pope were on the panel. So we were like a real panel that would be involved if you went in front of Congress. I had There was a British government guy that claimed he worked in the government, knew about UFOs. Tennyson and I who had our experience, and our attorney, well, actually, he was my attorney, but he, at the time, Jim was acting like he was his. But we testified in front of this these group of people, and I presented evidence to them showing that I was injured. And so did Jim. Jim said he was injured. And he already admitted in, during the testimony that he was actually receiving disability through the government. Um, and I presented all the evidence and documents showing my records were classified, I was injured, and everything else. Well, they were so moved by that that they, um, they formed a letter that they sent to President Obama telling him to get him directly involved in my case that was signed by all of them. And then he also sent a letter to the VA. Well, right after that, when we got out, we came back to our where we live, my attorney got a phone call from a CIA guy that wanted to come and visit him and go over some stuff with him. So the guy came down to Jackson, Mississippi and visited him and um, laid out. He had a pretty good idea what was going on, what happened. and wanted to meet with Penniston and I. And so eventually he went and came and met with, with me in Sedona with, 
with Pat and his wife, who's also an attorney and a nurse, evaluated me and told Pat that I didn't have much longer to live. And this was why all this was going on with, with the, you know, the VA and stuff, because we put our appeal in and uh, the guy by the name of Christopher Green, which is in the book, um, actually said that we were going to file a federal lawsuit, actually having them justify why my records are classified. So this was all going on. The, um, the appeal was in progress. So then he wrote a letter um, to the government, to the VA, and to the DOD explaining exactly what ha happened to me and my injuries, which then led to the actual the government taking me in and treating me for my injuries and giving me life-saving surgery. But also along the way, the next thing that happened was we were finally able to go through different avenues and prove that I was in with in the Air Force in 1979. So at that point, they said, withdraw the appeal, okay? And we'll go ahead and take the new evidence. And the, the staffer that was handling it through McCain felt that I was going to get would get my disability. So that was all going on at the same time. I had my surgery. And then... After my surgery is when um, we, uh, okay, I had my surgery. All right. Then came back to the, came, moved back, moved from Arizona to Illinois. And the, the appeal was withdrawn right before I moved back. And we submitted the new evidence. And I told Cheryl at the time, I said, this isn't over. All of a sudden, about a month after that, I got a letter from the government saying, thank you for withdrawing your appeal. The case is closed. So that's when it got real ugly because McCain himself got personally involved and said, wait a minute, you guys said if we gave you the new evidence, he would be taken care of. And well, no, we're not. And he said, well, then I'm going to open up hearings into, into the whole event. And some other stuff went on. We did an IG complaint. And after all this took place, what eventually happened was in early in 2015, the government granted me full disability, acknowledging based on what we put in, submitted for my injuries, what they were and where it happened was in the line of duty in Rendlesham Forest. And we submitted Project Condine, some other documents that we had to include documents that were given to us by, by uh, the CIA guy that we submitted all this and I was granted full disability. So at that point, the United States government took responsibility for my injuries and acknowledged that I was injured in the line of duty, you know, during the event. What they didn't do was say what exactly injured me. You know, in other words, they did they the documents they accepted was it was UAP radiation, which is now what the government says UFOs are, but they never officially acknowledged to me what it was. That's including what the both aides said was the fact that they were going to probably get the care I deserve, but I wasn't going to ever get told what happened. So then if you go further into the book, Christopher Green went on a site called Above Top Secret and laid out three paragraphs of what my injuries were, what caused it, and that my injuries were actually had to do with the special access programs. programs. And he had only seen records in his career, and I state this in his career, that he had had access to that were classified were Adolf Hitler's, John F. Kennedy's, and mine. Those are the only records he had ever seen that were locked down like they were. So 
So he acknowledged that not only was he involved, but that my records were classified. So the United States government tried to pull a fast one and say I wasn't even in the Air Force. And to this day, my medical records are still classified. Well, not much you say, is there really, Ron? No. It's pretty amazing, really, when you think what John went through. Nearly exactly. died. Exactly. If I hadn't been for Kit Green, who could have been involved in other ways as well, because there were some... Um, well, go ahead and don't tease people. Tell, I, tell. No, I don't know if I... After the um, different events, um, one of the airmen was tasked to take the airmen to this um, CIA, um, what would we call him, doctor? And they were um, interrogated, let's say. And we do know that there was um, interviews conducted under hyp hypnosis as well. And sometimes, maybe sometimes using true drugs like sodium pentothal or amatol and stuff like that. So um, obviously these airmen wouldn't know much about that, except this one person couldn't be hypnotized. And she can remember the people who were taken to the cleanup doctor. And one of them people included Colonel Holt. Right. Because uh, that brings me up to this thing is um, talking about all this, about obviously what they call the men in black. Mm -hmm. And I, I was reading uh, the stints on it, uh, Adrian. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, or he put in the book, that he, uh, he'd had uh, problems with the men in black. Yeah, so Plus, his family did. His you family know, they, did. That's they right. Turned up on his road, and um, yeah. his family were all military people. His dad yes. was worked for the government, and he's saying to Adrian, "What the hell have you got involved with? Because I've got these black vans parked at the end of the road, and they're interested in what's going on in this house." And yeah, he said, what... well, "All I done was what my, you know, my duties. I just done my duties. I didn't done anything wrong, but they Is were it... keeping an eye on him." Um, not just him, also Edgar Bansack, he didn't say a lot to anyone um, because the first time he did speak, and well, maybe that would be the CNN, John, would that have been the CNN where, where Ed spoke? No, I believe, I believe Ed was, Bruni tracked him down, and then yeah, yeah. I think he did James Fox um, out of the blue. Yeah, he didn't, he it, didn't do I Know What I Saw directly, they just used clips from my, uh, out of the blue. So those yeah. were the two times. They the same clips. But straight afterwards, he got he had his own business and he got investigated by the um, um, in the revenue people. like the IRS. 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 Yeah. And so that's why Ed would never say anything else ever again because, you know, he felt like he was targeted because he spoke. He spoke out. But yeah, yeah I mean, when, when I read uh, in John's book, you know, about the guy sitting outside – Adrian's house, you know, and mm. um, he was saying you know, they, these guys were there to get out with like Ray Bans on all the mm. the way they supposed to look, I suppose. And then he was taken, wasn't he, somewhere mm. and was that, that was on base? That was he was, that was on base, yeah. Where, yeah, yeah. where they said, "What did you see?" And he told them, and they said, "No, you didn't." And yeah, he was interrogated him. really harshly. You know, he kept yeah. I mean, insisting that he was. Um, 
what what he saw, and they're saying no, what you saw was the lighthouse. What you saw was the lighthouse, and um, that was that was Adrian who was told bullets are cheaper, diamonds. Right. You know, I'm going to say that. I mean, pick that. that story up, but um, he, in the end, he just would say anything just to get out of there. Yeah, bullets are cheap. Yeah, yeah bullets are cheap. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah, it's very scary. scary. Yeah, but I mean, that goes on. That goes on in the yeah. middle. But that in the first, that in the first time that um, these airmen and soldiers as well have been treated harshly by their own people. They're supposed to be protecting them. Yeah, Adrian was treated really badly. I mean, that's to get anything out of Adrian is not easy, is it, John? I mean, when, when we got him to come on Phenomenon Radio, that was the first radio show he'd ever done, he he still won't talk about some things. I mean, not on air. And he's very, he's also still very confused um, what's real and what's been plugged into him. Well, I can tell you, I think, why that is, Ronnie. Yeah. I've kind of done some deep dive in this. I honestly believe, and this is me, that and it's in the book Larry Warren wrote, with Peter Robbins was and and Warren's even said that if you took him out of it, the event still happened. He wanted people to talk that at one point, Bistenza was still at Bentwaters and Warren was getting kicked out and sent home that they made a pact that Warren would get the story out. Yeah. So what, what happened was that Warren came back to the States, got, um, what was his name? Um, there were two guys, Greenfield, what was his name? Greenfield, Harry and Greenwood, Greenwood. Greenwood, and Ron Summerman. I can't remember the two investigators. It's cause when he citizens against UFO secrecy. Right, he started talking, and I think what happened. Larry Fawcett, sorry, the other yeah, Larry Fawcett. I think Larry got got became popular. No one else was talking about the event. This is before News of the World hit. Okay, and Larry started embellishing. Okay, the story. Mm -hmm. And that kind of screwed Adrian over because they Larry did agree to get the story out for Adrian because Adrian was still in. And Adrian obviously had problems with his family and stuff, so he was hesitant with that. So what it really came down to was Larry twisted the story so much that Adrian has a hard time consolidating everything, never mind the fact that you have with the, the fact that what Larry did was that he embellished it so much, and then the infighting between Halt and him, it led to such a problem with people even wanting to step forward and talk about it. So yeah. Larry was doing Adrian a favor at first, but then he became real popular and started to live the event like it was his. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, I, I met Larry a few times. Uh, it was okay, you know, was, seemed a decent guy. In fact, he, I think Larry was first person, I think, to take me down the forest. We met somewhere. Uh, it takes us in the forest at night. Or well, he might have been the second guy. But mm. uh, that was a few years ago now, probably 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. I haven't seen him since. The, um, a few months ago, we'd done a radio interview with um, Laurie Redfelt who was also stationed at Bentwaters. And I was put on the spot, asked to cover the timeline, which is quite a task, there's a lot involved. Mm. And I forgot to mention Larry's story, which is in the book. Everything's in this. His, his story was in the book. That was unintentional. And we did tonight say that we weren't going to talk about 
Larry Warren. I, you know, I, I did say that. So for them, Oops, I get crucified. No, it's okay. I get I didn't know. I didn't know. People saying tomorrow, oh, they've left Larry out of it again. I've done it un unintentionally before, and things just evolved, didn't they? So. <laughs> oh, well, mentioned him tonight, didn't you? So. Yeah. Well, actually, I did, but at, did, the end of the, at the end of the day, here's the deal. There is a big discourse. It started with Hall, and he basically went after Warren for years. And it led to a big problem with other people wanting to talk about the event. So my personal opinion is, is that Larry actually was trying to help Adrian out and got, got caught up in the lights and camera, you know, in fact, there it's in, it was in left at East gate when Chuck, the first contacted me and CNN first got involved, the air force actually thought the story that Warren was telling was me. They actually thought that the story that Larry was talking about was actually me talking about it. They told CNN I was a disgruntled airman. But in fact, the truth was I was just at my second base keeping my mouth shut until News of the World hit. And that's when everybody started, or my third base by then. I was at my third base by then, and that's when News of the World hit, and everybody started running me down. And then they quickly realized that it was Larry Warren. So when I say that he combined stories, is my point is, is he knew a lot about what happened to Adrian and I. And he did admit in his own book that he spoke with Bastinza and Bastinza wanted him to get the story out. So my point is, is he describes quite a bit of things that not only did happen to Adrian and I, but some of the stuff that Adrian was involved with prior to him and I meeting up that night. Mm -hmm. So... That's my feelings about it. It just it is what it is, and I'm not afraid of any of them. Bring it. I don't care. I was there. So, Adrian had told me that um, Larry had got his story so much off to a T that he suspected he, he had to have tape recorded him because he remembered everything what Adrian told him. So there you go. But I mean, uh, you know, it's like. Um, Larry goes bounces all over the place like well I'm the whistleblower uh not really uh, JD Ingalls was he's the first one to bring it out to the investigators that started pursuing this but I mean and in reality he did bring the story out the the question is is what hurts Reynolds from somewhat is the fact that Halt went after Warren forever that caused issues now Halt and Peniston are fighting Neville's is changing the story and fighting with Halt so you've got all these different people arguing and fighting about what happened and who they were. And I mean, Halt spent 30 minutes of a MUFON presentation a couple of years ago, exposing Pennison as a fraud for his code. What his wife told him, you know, what Pennison's ex-wife told him about what Jim was all about and doing all that. So you've got all this fighting going on. But for me, the reason why I wrote the book was because I've tried to do an investigation working with people like Ronnie, James Warrow, you know, and stuff, and Wynn Keach, you know, and stuff, and try to figure out what happened to us. You know what I mean? And yeah, have yeah. I gotten drawn in a little bit with Warren's story? Yeah. I met Larry several times, and what he has to say doesn't add up. Pedersen's story doesn't add up. Halt clearly was proven by Bernie that he lied about Bastin's and I's involvement. And the memo's not right. The dates are wrong. 
which led to all kinds of problems over the years. So the story itself is kind of a mess, but it did happen. The governments mm. acknowledge it happened. I was injured. Adrian was injured, you know, by it. And maybe some other people have some issues too. Pennison said on in, at the hearing that he was getting disability for what happened there. So it affected us. Something went on. But if you look at the book, it had to do with technology and a UAP, UAP, whatever that is, and the government's weaponization of it. Because I did a FOIA with the British government who came back to acknowledge my FOIA that they were developing technology off of UAPs, but it was all classified in what they were doing. It's in the book. So mm -hmm. the event happened. The sad part about it is, is people just can't own up to what happened. And I get ridiculed because I don't remember what happened when I got close to it both times. But if you read Condine and what time dilation and stuff is, it will affect what you remember and how you, you know, as far as what you can and can't remember when you got close to it. Now, I went under hypnosis, which brings out a whole different story. And but people are critical of hypnosis. But the, the hypnosis goes along the lines of what happened other than it fills in some missing details. But the story itself has issues with the people involved, but it happened. And I feel this book, Weaponization of a UAP, lays out, of, explains a lot of what happened to us and what the government knew and what exactly they're doing with what a UAP is and how they're weaponizing it. Mm. The, the timeline in the book, Alex, um, everything in that timeline is not me saying what happened. That's the actual people. That's their words not what I say could have happened or did happen. That's mm. what I've said. So when I talk about what Jim Penniston remembers, they're his words. When I talk about how John remembers it, they're his words. Colonel Holt, his words. That's not speculation or um, I think happened. That's their words. They can't all be correct, can they? Because they're different unless something else is going on. Yeah. But that's what they're saying. So that's up to everyone to read. All the publications that are out there and draw their own yeah, and make your own mind up and make yeah. your own mind up and yeah no one's ever going to agree what happened you know I, i'm not trying to make anyone believe you know what well, happened. no ronnie the interesting thing is in the book hold acknowledged that when keach's summary of what took place with the satellite and everything was basically true yeah so mm -hmm. people and then not only that but there's another summary from one of the osi guys that were involved lays out a great detail about the agencies were involved, what happened and everything else. And Halt confirmed that that OSI guy was involved with the incident. Yeah. So the book itself, it doesn't like you have Penderson's book attacks everybody. Okay. Halt's book attacks everybody. The weaponization book doesn't attack anybody. It simply goes with Ronnie's timeline and even talks about Warren and then it goes into the different things that I experienced and it goes into the, the, the weapons that were the stuff that was being worked on by the British and American government right outside the back gate. And it lays out a, a pretty clear picture. And then when Keach's involvement talking about how a satellite was brought down. So the book, the weaponization book is probably the closest book to what really happened other than Bruni was able to get everybody on, on record pretty much, except me, because Halt hid, hid me from her the entire time. She yeah, was trying to find me, but Halt would Halt knew how to get a hold of me, but she never could find me. I was 
I wasn't saying I was completely hid away, but I was pretty well hid. I pretty well kept myself under the undercover as far mm -hmm. as being able to be tracked down, especially after the news of the world broke. So, yeah, well, Colonel Holt told Georgina Bruni that Ed Kabanchak was working for the government and that they wouldn't talk to anyone. When she finally um, traced him down, he was happy to talk to her. He wasn't working for the government. I think he had a health food business or something. He wasn't, he wasn't working for the government. But it seemed like Holt was um, not wanting to, her to speak to anyone. Other than who he wanted, you know, as far as he wanted. He, yeah. Yeah. Moving on a bit now is the I didn't I not heard of until I read this in John's book was mm. uh, was it Burrow Hill? Yeah, I never heard of this place. But that Burrow was another that was uh, another part of the story, wasn't it, John? Well, Ronnie can describe Barrow Hill. I don't know the history of it or anything. So I, I don't know what I've read in the book. Right, uh, uh, the history of it, that was, um, there was a causeway going out to it. There was an island at one time, a small island, and um, there was obviously a settlement on it. We found out later when they'd done archaeological digs on there. Um, and there was a track that come from the Butley, Pri Butley Priory, is it Butley called? Butley Priory, yeah. Yeah, Butley Priory, up to there. So that was um, from Saxon times onwards, there was always a settlement there. Now, in just before 1980, I think 1978, the first time, they were taking aggregate from there and using it in the tracks in Rendlesham Forest and, and around. The landowner was um, excavating from there, and then they come across all these 200 graves, most of them adult men, some children, few women. And, um, yeah, that that's Butley Hill. Well, that, that um, Burrow Hill, that's where John ended up on that night. That's where he was overlooking and we went there, didn't we, John? And you and he stood on that hill, and he could, that all came back to him what he was looking at. And you well, like I said, I always remembered the, seeing the lighthouse when mm. we got up, we got to the towards the coast, and I remember seeing the lighthouse, and it's the actual seeing it. So we went back and walked the path I thought we went on, and it, it matched up to what I remember that part of it. But the interesting thing was, if you look in the book. When Keats took some pictures out there on the hill, and there was some weird orbs in it. Yeah, we got some weird orbs. Orange orb yeah. as well. Yeah, and then also there was a high EM frequency there. Yeah, that was given a pulse off, Alex. Yes, really? that yeah. hill was given a yeah. pulse off. Yeah. So, so that goes back to something that happened before our event called Cobra Mist. They put a lot of money into putting Cobra Mist there, and there was inland interference that was interfering with Cobra Miss and they shut it down. Well, interesting enough, Wynn talks about how that pulse and that, those, that what's underground there, as far as the EM fields would affect Cobra Mist. And that's probably the phenomenon that, that Pandra Pike was studying that mm -hmm. particular area. There's an energy pulse and field underneath that area. And I believe Ronnie, and this is where I don't want to get wrong, get it wrong. There are ley lines that go through there too, aren't they? Yeah, there are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um the thing about the spirits in the forest, and we all know there's spirits in the forest, but most of us have experienced it at some time or another. When they were ripping through that aggregate on the taking the top off that mound, how many of them bones and bits of body have been spread around the forest? Well, what do you think about it? There's orbs and it, it that would have you know all those years ago with some who that that have all been. One 
thing I would imagine. Sutton, who, yeah, Randlesham would have all been. Yes. I mean, yeah. obviously, now you've got roads going for it, but I was there Thursday and I put a sort of a 300 mil lens on my camera. And you know, I've been going down for all these years, I've never noticed this before until I read this in John's book. And I looked across the farm where the farmhouse is and I saw a hill. I thought, mm. oh, I've never seen that before. Mm. That's obviously Burrow Hill, must be. Yeah. 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 Never, ever noticed that before. Yeah. I seen, yeah. Um, years ago, there was a ferry go from there, like a rowing boat ferry. Yeah. You know, it's always been inhabited. Oh, I have to try and have a look in here. So Elaine, is there? There's, there's a. There's one of our meetups at uh, Secret yeah. One. There, there is a way to it, and you can work out if you go on Google Maps. You can drive quite a way there. The the farmer where you'd have to park on the edge of his field is normally quite. So long as you take your litter with you, and he's normally quite um, open for people to go up there. But that is obviously private land. You got to respect that. That's his land, but there's, yeah, he's never turfed anyone off. Uh, Joe, the valley has been nicknamed by historians as England's Valley of the Kings. Yeah, there are so I, many burial mounts. Well, there's um, there's tumuli in the forest. Yes, there are. We, we, yeah. yeah, and we you know that. when they um, excavated Sutton Hoo, they never found King Redwell's body or an impression of it. So he probably. If, if he was buried there, he would have been moved somewhere else. Yeah. Perfect place in the forest. Fascinating, that. Mm. <laughs> I don't think this mystery will ever go away, you know. Really. I, I think Not, there's so much more mystery at Rendlesham than just the UFO. But, yeah. but the UFO, I suppose, bought it, you know. Yeah, of course. Everyone's yeah. attention. And then, but as you, yeah, I, I may have had some experiences in there mm. and some of the photographs I've taken. Mm. And um, I've never felt, I'll be honest, I've never felt in danger the first time when that, whoever it was spoke to me. But, uh, yeah, well, it's just a fascinating place, you know. Well, you do understand, Alex, that there's still an active facility there, that part of Marlstrom Heath's still there. Yeah. The British side of it's still there. And they have all kinds of equipment and they work on telecommunications, which would have directly to do with all that went, went on these different, yeah. different equipment. And the, what people don't understand, I'll give an example. The technology that was needed back then, like they at the time they had what they called elephant cages. And one of them was the Chicksands. And I actually had somebody from Chicksands tell me that it was involved in the incident. But today's world, that particular alpha cage has been replaced by a small satellite dish because the, the, the chick sands was used for communications command and control. Right. So, and they used um, eventually AWACS planes, but they had a different plane at the time. It was a Navy plane that they used, which I, I don't have the name of it in front of me, but the AWACS came afterwards. But he said it was involved in the incident, which means there was a coordinated effect going on. Mm -hmm. But today's world, they use a small satellite dish, and the um, the actual elephant cage is obsolete. And mm -hmm. a lot of these radar facilities, these large facilities, are no longer needed. They've made the equipment so much better and smaller that they can still continue things on, including what used to have a facility there 
that the, the British side's still there to this day. And the phenomenon is still there. I mean, when we went back at 10, we got stuff on camera of different things go, floating around down there in that finger of trees out there in the farmer's field. Yeah, I must have a little trip down there. <laughs> have a little trip down to that farmer's field sometime. But yeah, uh, that's fenced in. You can get to, through the other way, can't you? But that's where I had my bad experience, right on the end of that finger of trees. Yeah. It's I mean, you, you know, the orbs, that, 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 like the orange orbs, I've said, I've seen the orange orbs in there. There was three in a car. Mm. Um, that was about four years ago. But just uh, curiosity, really. Do you think and uh, somebody asked? We were talking about this a few weeks ago, wasn't we, Elaine? With uh, like, do you think anything could have been left there? Oh, alien wise. Alien wise. Could anything have been left in that forest? I don't think I could have been left in the forest because I mean, the forest has been devastated, and then replanted isn't it and that's, mm. i mean that is a that is a farmed forest that's oh definitely yeah 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 whether something's been buried i mean there's mm. there was a little bit of a hush hush thing went on in that farmer's field where loads of soil was brought in was there yeah well mm. fascinating isn't it hey eh? <laughs> i'm sure I mean... it grow carrots <laughs> and yeah. the next thing you know a fence has gone up yeah, yeah. In, interestingly, where that finger of trees is, you know what we're talking about, don't you, Alex? Where the, the big farmers field and that finger of trees come out. Yeah. To the right hand side of it, a few years back, the um, the farmer put in to put an irrigation ponds in there, and part of the deal for him to get the permission was first of all Suffolk Archaeology had to go along there and do a dig, and they found countless things in there, countless um, settlements. And they left all the artifacts in situ. Nothing was taken out. That was just that little bit to the right of the finger of the trees. What's in the other part of the field? Because the main Capel Green settlement wasn't even in that field. That was over the road behind the cottages. That yeah. little corner piece there. If you look at it, there's like stream run around. It's like it's shaped for horseshoe. But the, the whole place around there is steeped in history. And all ancient history, not modern history, ancient, ancient history. Like, of, of, you know, I've heard Brenda talk about the ancients. You know, there's a lot of old souls and spirits in there. Oh, God, yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, I've seen things in there. As I told you, he was down there in the archery club. You know, I've mentioned it on here. And um, there was only two of us in there practising. And I needed to practice, guys. I needed to practice. But anyway, uh, a figure came from behind a tree, what they call shadow people. Yeah. Went back. And I said, just, oh, just hold on. And it ran ran across through the trees. Now, people can believe me, whatever. And somebody on here, I think, was said that we had weapons. So this must have been an old, 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 old character. Yeah. Who, yeah, they were old bows and arrows. I actually hmm. witnessed that. Oh, it's an amazing place. Well, not so amazing at the moment. It's very quieter at the moment. But um, Yeah, I've known um, years when I go like that for ages. And I always found the wintertime was very inactive anyway. But when it started warming up around about June and 
Mm. And and also early hours of the morning, a lot of people go home before the activity starts. Yeah. You get down there about three o'clock in the morning, that's a different, completely different forest. Not for the faint hearted. <laughs> Definitely not. Kathy, what are your thoughts on the Cable Green Independent documentary film? John Rachel Forrest, you <laughs> You're afraid to touch this one, Ronnie? <laughs> no, I'm there. No, no. Uh, how, well, Ronnie, answer this part. How long have they been supposedly going to put the film out? That you know. You can answer that one. I'll, I I'll think about it. seven years, something like that. I've done some work with a film company, and films can take up to 20 years, but they announced it to be coming out after a year, then that was put back six months, then two years, then another six months, then three years, and this has been going on and on and on. Mm. Um, you know, I hope it do get, I hope it do get released. It'd be interesting to watch it. I, yeah, well, I, I know, say... I know, there's people in the background waiting for it to come out. <laughs> legal people. Legal yeah, there people. you go. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, that yeah. film. It was, it was plastered all over the internet. Yeah, that was. Point. I mean, that's... I know it's been at least three to four years i didn't want yeah. i don't know if it's been that long all i could tell you is let's let's see what yeah, happens. i might got that wrong that might be but that's I, been several well, years. I, no i don't know for sure it's just like if people are going to ask me about the binary code i guess there's more to come according to gary osborne you know peniston's handler so my point being is is let capable greek come out yeah. let the binary code come out i'm not trying to shut down anybody's story or version but if you want to ask my opinion of what I think they have to, what they've said about certain things or me or something else, I'll give it to you. But ultimately, the best thing to do is, come on, guys, put Cable Green out. I know I, uh, Gary Hesseltine just put a book out, and there's a row between Cable Green and him about that his book was covering a lot of Cable Green. They pulled it, for Amazon pulled it, but it's back online again. So... There's a fight going on between that, those two. And I thought maybe it was just publicity. I still think it might have yeah. been. But ultimately, put it all out. I put, <laughs> I worked with Ronnie and James and Wynn, you know, on, and even David Clark on the last book. And I'm open to discuss it, but let them all put it out and let people make their own calls. You know, I could just tell you my experiences with these people and how I feel about certain things. But I also believe in freedom of the press. And people should put out what they want to put out and let people be the judge. I, I, um, so, John, you never got interviewed by them? Well, actually, it was weird. Um, there, what was the guy's name that showed up that had a a, a controversial girlfriend? or or? Oh, yeah. I know you mean, but I can't think of his he name. He contacted yet. me, and Lloyd Reifelt was kind of involved. And they actually asked me if I would do an interview for him. And, of course, Nick Pope and some other people got upset that I would even acknowledge Capable Green. And I, I just wrote back to him and I said, yeah, I will submit a, a set of questions that I will be willing to talk about. And the agreement has to be that whatever you ask me, you know, all my questions or whatever has to be put in full content. It can't be, you know, edited. It has to be. You ask me a question and my answer is put out. It's not chopped up or utilized improperly. I said, I'll, I'll work with you on that. And they never got back to me. So I wasn't afraid to go on and talk about what I knew. 
but they didn't want they act and that was offered by that whoever that I forget his name now, but he was supposed to be working with the project at the time. And mm-hmm. then that some people behind the scenes killed it. So mm-hmm. they didn't want they didn't want to interview me. So yeah, I don't think I've interviewed Penniston. Well, Penniston, Penniston or Halt refused. I believe. Mm-hmm. I think they asked them to do it, knowing they'd say no. But I think they were caught off guard that I would come on. You know, sure. Yeah. You want to? I'll. I'll. We'll set up the questions and you, and I'll answer them. But they have to be fully. You know, there has to be the question followed by mm-hmm. my answer. Can't be edited. And they didn't want to do that. So. Yeah. No. No. Come. Halt isn't. Come. Halt isn't. Folks. Be interesting when it comes out, it won't. Yeah. Well, well, well it, don't hold your breath, okay? Uh, <laughs> the, the thing is, driving a documentary about Rendlesham and not have the main characters that are involved, as Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and Colonel Halton, missing the point a bit. I know I spoke to people who were on the fringes and not to do with the RFI, but before and after. And and. Well, but Ronnie, honestly, I'm not trying to, to discredit what you're saying. But if you want to come up with some other witnesses, you want to make Larry Warren your feature witness, fine, do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't have to be involved. I was just, they reproached me. Somebody didn't ask me to do it. And when I said, yeah, but under these conditions, they wouldn't, they didn't want to, they didn't want to interview me all of a sudden. But the point is, is it's just like my book. There's going to be people that are against James and I's and Ronnie's book, you know, as far as what we did, they may not like what we said or whatever. That's fine. So I'm not against anybody putting something out. Just, you know, be prepared. Put your big boy pants on because there's going to be sides coming at you from every which way (laughs) going after what you had to say, you know. But the interesting thing about the weaponization book, there was not much negative about it, was there, Ronnie? I mean, I don't think a lot of people knew what to do with the book. They I, didn't. I, I know, um, as far as the timeline goes, they can't because it's all in their own words. So they can't argue about what they've said themselves. Right. I mean, and that's I'm not the any criticism about that. Yeah. And the interesting thing is certain people, and I won't name names, forgot what they said in the past. Yes, and it comes back to haunt them yeah. later. It comes back yeah. to haunt them later. When that, they said yeah. something earlier and then, oops, there's proof that now that what they're saying isn't what they said earlier or what they said earlier, there's evidence to support what they didn't say earlier, including like Colonel Hall himself. He tried to deny that Bistenza and I were ever involved and that was proven wrong. There's a question some people may want to ask. I I, I went to, I was at a conference at Woodbridge, first one I ever went to about 12 years ago and there was a I don't know if he was a colonel, anyway, some quite high up guy. And he was talking about somewhere in America where a similar thing happened at Woodbridge, apparently, was like a craft come over yeah, base. Captain Salas. Where was it? That was Captain Salas who was, was talking it? about it. Yeah, where the craft come over and sh- and closed down 20 minute missiles one That's after it. the other. But yeah. didn't, didn't, did you witness uh, those beams coming down? Talking about the the weapons systems in in, in Woodbridge, John. There was no weapon systems in Woodbridge. Oh, there weren't. No. No, that's all in Bent Wars. Oh, so, so, Ron, so Ronnie tells you. Yeah. Ronnie's saying there were weapons there. What what I can tell you is this. I can tell you what's been publicly. 
publicly put out, okay, prior to 79, it's all over the place. And in actuality, I can say this much too. People claim that in the UK, nuclear weapons were not allowed to be put in there by the Americans. In fact, the nuclear weapons were not in the United Kingdom in different locations, including Green and Common, under a treaty between Great Britain and America. It was a NATO treaty. So any of the weapons, including Glickham, that was put in and has been acknowledged for being there, and the weapons prior to 1979, they had a weapons storage area at Woodbridge and Bentwaters. Woodbridge, they had F-4s on alert with nuclear weapons. They actually had the weapons loaded on aircraft. That's all been made public, okay? And the weapons storage at Woodbridge was utilized for those weapons. Now, the Bentwaters weapons were there if they brought in more aircraft and uploaded them, okay? But after the F-4s left and all that got shut down, then the mission changed and the A-10s came in were the primary mission at at Bentwaters Woodbridge. They had them at both locations. And there was no weapons storage area at Woodbridge anymore active. The, the clues are in the old maps of, um, if you look at them, of the Woodbridge and the Bentwaters bases. Because on the Bent, on the Bentwaters base, that says weapons storage area. And in Woodbridge base, that says non-nuclear weapons storage oh, area. Right. <laughs> but that was after 79. Prior to that, yeah, yeah. It, and in fact, there was the interesting thing about it was <coughs> at the time I was there, it was the largest tack fighter ring in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. But that Woodbridge one had a huge canine section because they didn't have the sensors and stuff that they did after I got there, you know, that they used in weapon storage areas. So that whole web, Woodbridge area was patrolled by canine, including mm -hmm. the, um, the alert area. And if you look at the Google satellite of it, you'll see both facilities look the same. They both had towers. They both had entry control points. They had double fences. And you could see over by the 67th where the alert area was for the F-4s. Hmm. Oh, we'll have a look at those. Um, what we got here? Bill, Ronnie, friend of me from Scotland, talking uh, to an Iron Age elder in the forest. Bill took a picture 20 feet away, all three feet large in size, and a beige colour was lit up over his right shoulder. Yeah. Oh, that was out there as well. Yeah, hello, um, Alien Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know Alien Bill, do you? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, here's my mum, Lynn. I swear to you, your face was transfigured into my date dad's face. Oh, no, not again. My face keeps transfiguring, apparently. Mm. Oh, don't want too much of that. Are you a shapeshifter, Alex? <laughs> well, if... I don't know. I, all I know is that. Um, actually, I'll show you if I if I've got them on here. I'll, I'll let you see it. Um, there you go, John. Is that shape shifting? <laughs> I don't even know it happens. Uh, no, neither do I. That's that's for a different radio show. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if you called it shape shifting. I don't know what it's called really. Um, a bit scary, though, isn't it? 
think it just <laughs> turns like that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an interesting picture. <laughs> yeah, I've got a few of those, mate. No, honestly, um, some weird stuff in that forest as well. Some weird photographs in there. Oh, no, there's no doubt that area has an eerie feeling to it. It always has. I mean, I've been back, what? See, I came back for the 30th. I came back for Strange But True, but never got down to the forest. Came back for the 30th, and I came back what for the filming of the... Uh, I've been back three times, and each time it, it still has the weird feeling when you go out there. There's something... Oh, yeah. At night, so it's not so much during the day, but you know, there's a picture on my Facebook page that if you go and look at it, that's a picture of my son. He's standing there with Gordy's dog, and that's the weird effect that the camera had, you know, mm. with him standing there in the darkness on the trail in the forest. I think that was my photo. Yeah, oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. It's a weird, weird picture, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, spooky. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I've been down there at night for a couple of years, but uh, like you say, Ronnie, you know, I don't know anymore. Don't know what's in there now. Mm. Um, but things change, don't they? There's, there's definitely some areas, I'm sure there's people listening who know where they are, where the forest is more ancient, not, you know, with the pine trees and that, the, the old oaks and places like that. They're the spookiest places. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I said to Elaine that when we go down there, it's gone very quiet. And I said, I think you're going to have to move further into the forest, go deeper, yes. deeper into yeah. it. Yeah, that might have been since they've had that um, UFO trail around the forest and it's been tramped by hundreds of people and exactly. a lot of negative people as well because, yeah. you know, not all, that must have an effect. So it's only the last 18 months it's gone like yeah. this, really. But there you go. It's, uh, it'll pick up again, won't it? I'm sure. Well, you I'll never know, do you? <laughs> I'll go down there and transfigure when the tourists turn up. <laughs> <laughs> that that that'll 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 not not help business very well. So, do you have any other questions for us? Because I think we're about done, aren't we? Um, I don't know. It's been a fascinating evening. I've got to say, um, I can't think of anything. Well, I can. Can I add a little pitch then? Um, yeah, of course. I'm, right now, I'm working on a um, a series. It's on the UNX network. It's on seven to nine. Uh, Friday nights on the UNX network and you can also look at it on YouTube it's put up on YouTube afterwards it's called weapon it's called phenomenon radio weaponization of a UAP now on we do two shows a month where we're 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 going into the details of what we think went on we're laying out the technology we're laying out the people that you know would be involved with the technology and stuff and then the other weeks we run the old Phenomenon radio show that Ronnie was a guest on several times where we had different interviews with different people, including Adrian Bistenza, Larry Warren, Peter Robbins, um, Colonel Halt, and some of the other people that, that we had come on and different scientists and stuff, including Annie Jacobson, you know, um, I can't. There's a whole list of people that we had in different shows. We had a guy by from uh, that, that was that did Project Green Glow in your country, but anyway, we, we you can you can tune in on Friday nights, and there's a lot that we're adding to the uh, what we've involved and what we've uncovered off the book and some other research that we have. So, well, I just have to look into that. Listen, if you're gonna 
an interesting Rendlesham. Everything has been covered in there. It's really good. Fantastic. Fantastic stuff. And uh, James Warrow, the guys that are involved right now are James Warrow, Professor Simon, he goes by, or Simon Holland, he was a British filmmaker, um, and then Race Hobbs and myself. And eventually, probably when we get to the history of uh, of uh, the area, we'll probably draw Ronnie in for a show. So, Awesome. Well, all I can say is, guys, thanks for a very informative, interesting evening. And um, hopefully we can do it again sometime because I'm sure there's a lot more. Oh, you, uh, you'll never get you'll never, you'll never yeah. get the end of it. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, John, thanks for coming on. Lovely to meet you, and um, hopefully, I'll say we can maybe do this again. Well, I always say just when I think it's safe to come out of the water, something something else <laughs> raises his ugly head. So. We'll see. I mean, there's, like you said, there's all kinds of stuff going on in America right now having to do with UAPs and our government's interest in it and hearings and all that. So probably down the road, there'll be more to come. Mm. As, as the old saying, is there more to come? Yeah, there's more. <laughs> awesome. Elaine, have you got any um, anything on your spirit box tonight? I have words which never come through before. Really? I will obviously put them on your wall. I say every time I ain't done it yet, I will do it. These just come through. These are words, yeah, random yeah. words that, that we get. Oh, sorry, my fingers are just blocking everything. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I was down in the forest one night with, um, I can't remember his name now, but he, he run, um, I was a friend of Derek's, Derek knows him, but he had a spirit box and a name come through that isn't well known with the Rendlesham Forest. The bloke was in spirit and that was really spooky, the information what came out on that. Yeah, because mm. I, I knew of the name, but he isn't one, a person who's been mentioned much at all, but the name came through. Yeah, we'll have to, have to go down and give it a go, Elaine, sometime. Mm. But, uh, yeah, uh, as I say, it's been a fantastic evening. Good. Glad you enjoyed that. Oh, 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 you know, everyone's... Uh, we didn't, didn't do many questions tonight. Um, so, sorry about that, guys. Um, next week, we have Andy Powell on, don't we, Elaine? Uh Fantastic guy talks about the crop circles been on before. And um yeah, again, another interesting subject and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna shut this down. I won't take you out yet. And uh I'm just gonna put up our a little thing Elaine told me about this the other day. If you can, and apparently this one is supposed to have our photographs in it. Which <laughs> thing is, I can't remember where I got it from. <laughs> I can't put the photos in there. <coughs> I've got to go and find the original. So that's my job for the week, Elaine. Very good. See, I'm, I'm very busy. Anyway, guys, we're going to 
I've got another comment up here. Not sure what's going on here. Anyway, guys, I'm going to shut the broadcast out now. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week. Same time, same place, 7 o'clock. Adios.